Welcome to The Lisa Show. Grandmothers have been an important leaders in families for generations, and in some societies, the actual political leaders. How are their roles changing in today's society with all their experience and wisdom? How can we draw on them for not only advice, but help? It's an overwhelming, you know, uh, transition, I think, that's happening in a lot of families cross-generationally. Richie, you've shared on this show the good memories that you have of your grandmothers. Yeah. And and I'm wondering um, if you have have noticed um, a, a difference in the way that and the role that they've played in your life, whether it's for guidance or love or acceptance or 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 even like a stronger role. Well, so I'll turn I'll, I'll turn this kind of on its head. So I'm yeah. watching as my mom. She's been a grandmother for a while. Yeah. But it's it's interesting because some of my siblings are now having uh, younger kids again, and I'm paying attention where I didn't with oh, the sure. first time she was kind of becoming grandmother. And so I've watched as she is changing and how she treats uh, the grandkids and how... Different than how she raised how, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in some comical ways, but also in ver- in some very sweet ways where I remember those experiences when I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents, but... You know, grandmas were the listening ear, the the comfort, the sometimes they didn't even need to say anything. In fact, one of the things I miss the most about my grandmother is that mm-hmm. she would whenever I would visit her until the very end, she she was able to comfort me, not saying anything, but she would grab my hand and put her other hand on top of my hand, so I'm like a hand sandwich, and she just would look at me and it would be like, Yeah. And it, and I really oh, I really didn't have sweet. to I didn't have to say anything she didn't have to say yeah. anything but it was just that knowing and understanding. Uh, a special experience that I had with grandmothers is that my my grandmothers my maternal and my paternal grandmothers were friends. Really? They went to college together back in the day, and and they were friends. Later, their kids obviously got married, and but it was nice. And they are both very very different. I had one my grandmother Margaret is very um, artistic. Artistic had a had a lot of children, very nurturing. My my grandma, um, Amy, was a very um, uh, very intelligent and uh, very driven. And they both came from different backgrounds, had different strengths, um, but were great friends and um, had a huge influence on my life. And as I look forward and I look at the role that my parents and my husband's parents play in our kids, and that. I I am struck by the the force for good that grandmothers can be in society and mm-hmm. helping to navigate that and and I'm wondering how we can use that force um, better yeah you know and and more pointedly I think um, uh, and so we have invited Keen Berger who's the author of the book Grandmothering and the grandmother of three to ha- continue this discussion about the role of grandmothers welcome Keen. Well, thank you very much. I am thrilled to be with you. And also, this is a great discussion. I'm really interested in your grandmothers. Oh, yeah. thank you for saying that. Um, I, my grandmothers have had a huge impact in, in my life. Um, and I'd yes, love to That's the way it should be. It really should. It should. I wonder if, though, if it's such an untapped resource. Do you think that, we're, that we are, I don't want to say using grandmothers, but do you think that we are folding them into our, our lives in the most effective way? Um, the, grandmothers zigzag in this culture right now. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they are very distant, and that is a bad thing. And sometimes they are too intrusive, and that's a bad thing, too. Yeah. So you're right. Where the Grandmothers themselves need to find that, you know, that sweet spot, that sweet spot in the middle where they are part of the family, but they are not trying to be the matriarch. So that's, that's, what, that's how we should use them. Mm-hmm. Well, Keen, you, you yourself that- are a grandmother of three. How have you navigated it? Are you succeeding, or do you find yourself either being too present or not present enough? Both, both, all. all. Oh, really? Uh, um, <laughs> that one of the reasons I wrote the book is to, you know, I am a developmental psychologist, a professor, so I know a lot. But then when it comes down to the actual grandmothering, I thought, let me see what I know. Let me apply it. And I, I think what my experience teaches me is that I'm quicker to notice. 
I'm quicker to notice when I have overstepped or understepped. Um, but I still overstep and understep, unfortunately. But it's, I mean, I say, oh my gosh. Luckily, my children understand that. Um, so they are quick to say, no, no, mom, no, 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 no. Yeah. Or, mom, <laughs> I need you now. I really need you. And I say, okay, you know, I, I'm happy to, to be needed. But uh, it's not easy. I, I like want to get to this. Yeah, well, I, I want to get to this, those specifics of grandmothering okay. and things that, that work. But before I do, I'm, I want us to take a, a, a larger look at it. And, and um, because I'm wondering in your research for this book, what the role of gra- that grandmothers play right now in today's society. Right. Uh, you you touched on it already. Um, what should be the role and what sometimes is, at least half the time, is a very good listener. Um, parents, of course, sometimes react too quickly when the child says something that seems radical. And grandmothers have seen it all. So they listen. And that is very important. We all need somebody to talk to. Um, who will who who we know loves us and will hear ideas that are brand new or whatever um, that's what grandmothers do and that is very important to today's society because as you know too many people are too depressed too quick to turn to drugs too I mean there there's some real hazards out mm-hmm. there that oh. grandmothers can be one of the defenses against. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I love is the, uh, I, I'm not sure if it's a famous quote from someone, but I know I, I picked it up somewhere. It says, grandmothers and grandchildren like each other because they have the common enemy in the parents. <laughs> yes. 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 Ouch. Yeah. Yes, I put that in the book, actually. And so I said, you coined the phrase. That's careful. where it is. Be careful with that one. It is, it's, it's true, and it's funny. But on the other hand, Sometimes the grandmothers make the mistake of joining an alliance against the parents, mm-hmm. um, and that is a real mistake because the parents are, you know, crucial. They're also crucial, so they need support too. Um, that doesn't mean they're always right. Nobody's always right, but um, but you know, and unfortunately, if the grandmothers play that hand too much and side with the grandchild against mm-hmm. the parents. That works for a year or two, and then the child goes, disappears, um, mm. you know, ha- plague on both your houses. Oh, wow. Um, so so uh, it's not, it, it doesn't work out well. It might seem good at the moment, but it does not work out well to, you know, mm-hmm. go on one. And it's just, it, it reminds me of parents, you know, if, if a mother and father are fighting, yeah. It's not a good idea to take sides for the children or the parents. I mean, the good idea is to try to help them work it out. Um, yeah, you know, it's in everybody's be best interest. Be, whatever, you know, be supportive. Listen, listen. Um, now, you know, one of the other problems in our world is people get divorced. But even then, um, grandmothers need to try to make sure that both parents are still involved with the children. Um, so it's not a good idea to turn away from half or anyone ever. Right. We're <laughs> That's talking with exaggeration. King. I mean, no. uh, there are right? know, there are exceptions, of course, but but the the general rule is, you know, try to listen, try to understand, find the common ground. That's it. We're talking with Keen Berger, who is a uh, professor and author of the book Grandmothering, Building Strong Ties with Every Generation. Um, a lot of people struggle to accept help from from yeah. their mothers, uh, their mothers-in-law, especially when it comes to parenting. Sometimes there's even like a little bit of resentment there. Uh, what, what is More your advice? More than a little. More than a little. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to little. say it nicely. Uh, there were about 10% <laughs> of the grandmothers in this nation are persona non grata in the family. The, the, the mothers say, do not come here. We will see you at Thanksgiving, period. Um, do not send gifts. Your gifts are no good for us. I mean, really extreme, which is bad for the kids. So what do you do but, in that situation? Uh, How do you handle it? 
Well, I mean, for, you you prevent it is the best way. You know, early on when the when your son first brings home this woman who is your rival but is his love, you make friends with her. <laughs> I was interested to hear that your your grandparents or your grandmothers were friends with each other. Oh uh, yeah, that is that is how it should be. But that is not how it always is. No, I didn't realize and, how uh, unique it was until I got older. Yes, yes. Because there is a lot of that. I mean, we all want, I want my grandchildren to like me more than their other grandmother. Right. And I have to, I have to watch that. <laughs> I'm know, not even a grandma to... yet. I'm not even close. And I know that about myself, that I'm going to be competitive. I think it's... <laughs> Yeah, it's in our, it's in our, I don't know if it's in our DNA or in our culture, but it's certainly a problem. And same with the mothers and the grandmothers, especially the mothers of the sons. The son is, you know, Hmm. there are two women he loves, his wife, we hope, and his mother, we hope. And those two women, if he has to choose between them, which sometimes happens, we hope he chooses the wife. Yeah, you it's know the in mother the best of interest. his children, yeah. and uh, the grandmothers have to, you know, accept that this this mother, this daughter-in-law, has mm-hmm. some different ideas about what to feed the children, how to discipline them, and um, and there are many ways to do it right. Um, you know, it, it, it you know people, some people their parents are quite indulgent, some people their parents are incredibly strict, and yet the children grow up and seem like pretty good people. So um, so it's not as if there's only one way. Right. But thing. I do, I do, yeah. I like what you're saying, though, about prevention. Uh, a great gift that my parents gave me was, this is between you and your husband. You know, they, they were very clear that you choose your, you know, spouse. And my grand, yeah. and my, both of my grandmothers did this really cool thing where they would pull me aside um, each one of them did that and said, oh, you're, you're so lucky that she's your grandma about the other one. Hmm. So my grandma, How Margaret nice. would say, oh, How you've nice. got the nice, yes. you know, you're so lucky to have Amy as your grandmother. She's so accomplished. She's so kind. She's so, you know, this, and then, um, uh, Amy would say the same thing. Oh, you're so lucky to have the grandmother, Margaret. She's so exactly. kind. And I mean, it was kind of a cool thing that they would say. They both admired each other. Obviously, that's not the case that everyone is going to be able to, you know, to have. Um, you have a lot of experience in this realm of, of having kind of like sort of to, to reset sort of uh, these, these boundaries. What's the best way to approach that? Yeah, conversation. Um, but grandmother, one of the things that the middle generation doesn't realize is that the grandmother generation has a lot of experience and a lot of activities. Somehow we have this idea mm-hmm. that the grandmothers are sitting around waiting to be called to babysit. Not true, you know. Right. <laughs> so they have to talk about it. You know, I really need you to pick up the children on Wednesday. Well, actually, that is a terrible day. How about Thursday? I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. It, as it is in real life, you know, they you, they have to understand why Wednesday is an important day for each, and then one of them figures out an alternate plan. That's how it has to be. And uh, yeah. instead of, you know, resentment, grandmothers yeah. say, you know, they always call me, but I they don't even ask. And the parents say, you know, she drops by without asking. I mean, they're, they're obviously, if they talked... They would figure it out. Yeah, it, it's an um, assumption, I guess, right? There just needs to be this clear, very um, open, but also fluid conversation of these are the things that we expect from you as, as a grandmother, and here's what you can expect, and these are the boundaries that we're, uh, we, yes. we kind of anticipate. But, you know, those things can change. I think it's a, a different thing from having uh, grandbabies to having grand teenagers to yes. having yes. having grand adults and those things transition quite yeah. a bit yes 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 um you know one of the things i wrote about it in the book um my i was taking care of my little grandson um i was supposed to get him up in the morning get him dressed and get him off to school um he was three um and so they had forgotten to they put on his clothes very nicely but they forgot to pack his lunch so i thought oh i can pack lunch now, first of all, I knew not to pack peanut butter 
because a lot of schools are peanut free. Sure. So I thought, okay, new new plan. So I had to look for things that were healthy. One of the things I packed was a granola bar, mm-hmm. which as soon as he saw it, he showed his teacher it has nuts in it. It never occurred to me to read the in- ingredients. The other thing that I did is I saw these two little wrapped candies in the refrigerator. I thought, oh, well, you know, I know he's not supposed to have candy, but little ones, okay. So I put them in his lunch, and he asked his mother, Mom, is dog food good for me? His mother said, no, why do you ask? And he said, Grandma packed two little dog treats in my lunch, and I ate one, but then I thought, this is not so good. I did not realize, of course, you know, I mean, they looked, they were just wrapped little candies is what they looked like. Anyway, so that's the kind of thing where you, you know, grandmothers really need to stop. And, and what I should have done is said, uh, you forgot to pack lunch. I could have called them up. They were both at work. Um, what should I give him? And they would have said, oh, whatever. But but I didn't. I thought I was being good. I thought I was <laughs> taking away a problem instead of adding a problem. Luckily, my little three-year-old grandson was smart. So that was, I mean, that's how it goes. You, yeah. you have to talk about these things. And right. my daughter laughed at the whole thing. I was going to say, it's funny, though. you, you got to laugh at things yeah. like that and allow allow the changing relationship to do just that, to change and and not force it to be something Yes, and I can imagine another parent saying, "Well, you can never ever oh, have yeah. lunch again." Now, my grand, my kids didn't do that. You know, there are That's some my, people. My son-in-law was the one who laughed the hardest. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. We have time for one more question, um, and okay. I, for some of the people, may be listening to this conversation and and think to themselves. Oh, I, I want a better relationship with uh, with either my my grandchildren, um, my my daughter, my son, whoever it is, or um, you know, f- uh, on the other side of that, and and the relationship may be strained. What's your advice yes. to mending that relationship yes. um, as, as a first step? Yeah, well, the first step is just to talk to them a little bit. You know, try to realize that every person is different. You know, make make. You know, my best friends are not like me always. They don't agree with me always on any kind of issue. But that they're still my friends, so try to think of it that way. But the second one, if there's really a strain, find a mediator. <laughs> find, uh, you know, a family therapist who is really up to the job or somebody who the both generations trust. It could be a distant relative. I mean, find somebody because it's sometimes it's really hard to listen um, when you're being attacked <laughs> um, or when somebody has very different values. Find somebody who can help you really hear each other. That's my advice. It's definitely worth worth the effort. Thank you so much, Keen. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Kane Berger is a professor of psychology at Bronx Community College, author of the book, Grandmothering, Building Strong Ties with Every Generation. You can find more information about her at KathleenBergerAuthor.com. weeks ago went to the bank with my with my son with my baby adult son uh-huh. and uh, to, to get him set up with a good savings account and uh, I did the same thing with my teenage daughter because she wants a debit card and so we were talking about how there are different options and you can tie it to your checking account yeah 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 and, mom I just want free money right, I just want to be able to run my card and have free so, money this is the conversation that we've been having at, at the Clark household is about how you you will feel so much better. This is my this is my big thing. Okay, are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. 
you will feel great if you spend less than you make. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's it. Yep. Like that's my that's my big, you know. There's financial success according <laughs> to Lisa Valentine Clark. I keep saying just save as much as you can. Don't spend your whole paycheck, uh-huh. you know, uh don't let your checking account go below a certain number, whatever that number that you just, you know, decide that it's going to be. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach them finances. Um I've tried uh, different things over the years uh, at their different ages and age levels and try to teach them as they get older about compound interest. Oh, interesting. Now, these things are not very easy to teach your own kids because they it sounds, when you say compound interest, kids just think I'm sorry, school. My, my eyes just glossed over what? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I don't want to send them out into the world unprepared, but I know that there are better financial ways, you know, to to. Get your kids ready for the world. Can I teach you uh, the the Stedman trick? This oh, is no. what my yeah? mom taught me about oh, yeah. finances. If you have a low credit score, I will find you no matter where you move. <laughs> for I real, like that your... was the thing. She never went I into like the specifics mom, of like though. a checking or savings yeah. account. She just was like, "You will live or die by your credit score." I... So help me if any of my children. That's and you know what? Hilarious. All of us children have a great. You do. Yeah. So somehow it, it, it translated, and I'm wondering what are the best practices to have your kids care about things like their credit score um, and to know how to build a good credit score, things like that. Well, we have invited personal finance lecturer Janae Chandler to help us be able to make a plan for teaching our kids how to uh, not only know what their finances are, but to make good habits early on. Welcome, Janae. Hi. I'm glad to be here. What are those common mistakes that parents make when when we're trying to teach our kids about spending and saving? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that the, one of the biggest mistakes is parents don't recognize how much their own attitudes and behavior are really impacting their kids. Um, I think we think it's what we say that matters when it turns out it's what we do that matters. There's a whole bunch of research out there that... Um, kind of shows that kids are going to be, in a lot of ways, just who they're going to be. But the biggest impact we have as parents are the attitudes that we have about stuff. That's what really translates into kids' lives. Well, that could be encouraging and discouraging, (laughs) depending (laughs) on, which I realize is not a shocking statement. But what you're saying is is that they they are watching us. There's no way we can fake this. So, okay, then no matter where we we fall on that, whether we're a good example or a bad example, what are some ways that we can get our kids excited about money management or savings? Yeah, yeah. So the thing we want to realize is that, so what kids are looking for Mm -hmm. in all circumstances and pretty much at all ages is they want our attention. They want our focus. And so the most powerful tool that we have in teaching them is what we tend to pay attention to. So, for example, with money, some of the biggest skills in managing money are patience, so that ability to sort of delay gratification to later, Mm -hmm. and then persistence, being able to stick at a task over and over. That's kind of the foundation for us, but the foundation for our kids. So this in real life really looks like paying attention to when your kids are doing those things. So if you have a child who's waiting for a turn on the swing, then you might call attention to that and be like, that's so cool that you're waiting for your turn on that and you're sharing and making that happen. Or if they're sticking to their homework when it's hard, calling attention to that and like making a note of this is what persistence looks like. This is, this is what it feels like and reinforcing those things as positive, even though both of those things don't always feel really positive. Right. So model this for me a little bit, because like, I remember when I first got my first job, right? I was a paper boy, like so many have for their first job. And I remember getting my first paycheck and it wasn't like, well, you know, even though my parents had modeled savings and, you know, paying towards bill, it was like, well, I'm going to go cash this and then I'm going to buy a bunch of candy and a bunch of food. <laughs> and it was gone before the weekend was over. And and there was never a time that, you know, that they that they didn't say, hey, are you sure that's one, how you want to spend your money? And I was like, yes, gobble, 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 gobble and ate it all down. How could how can we have those conversations with those once our kids start to get their own money? 
how they can manage it. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I think that kids actually need to have that real life experience of having their own money. So, and a lot of times it's great when we tie that to some kind of work that they do. There's kind of um, two thoughts. Some people think give them an allowance to have that experience. Other people think always make them work for it. And it's kind of a mixed thought, but helping them understand that money comes after labor and after some kind of sacrifice is really good. And then they need to have their own money and they need to be able to make mistakes with their money. Right. So the conversation can happen before or it can happen after the mistake. Um, the example I think of from my personal life is we were allowed, we were given a set amount of money to purchase school clothes. And I had, like, there was a fancy kind of shoe that everyone had. Mm -hmm. It was going to take up, like, most of my budget for school. Um, but there was kind of a knockoff version of that same shoe. Um, and But it was, like, my mom could tell. My I was shopping with my aunt. They could both tell it was just terrible quality. It was going to fall apart. And they were trying to push me toward a not-cool shoe um, that was going to last a lot longer. But they let me make that my own decision. And then when my shoes fell apart, I really felt the pain of it because it was my choice. Mm. Um, and that was such a valuable, valuable lesson. So I definitely think that the teaching can happen ahead of time. But I think we need to be careful not to make the choice for them because had I not felt the pain of that bad choice, I wouldn't have had to, had, I wouldn't have had that learning experience. And really, there wasn't a need in that situation for a follow-up conversation because I knew what I chose, and then I had to live with it. So there might be other cases where there's a follow-up conversation. So I mm. spent all of my money on candy, and I ate it the next day. And then maybe there's that, you know, and, and maybe parent is, can tell, like maybe kid is saying, oh, I spent all my money, but I really wish I had money for to go to the movies or yeah. whatever. and. Then there's that conversation of, well, remember how you enjoyed all those things yesterday. So the consequence of that is that we don't have money for today. And I think that it, it's easy for parents to, like, they don't want their kids to have to feel the pain. So they're like, well, I'll just supplement it. Um, but it is like in that moment, it's so important to remain firm and be like, yeah, this is how life works. But sometimes there's finite resources. And we made one choice and that makes it so we can't have this other choice. We're talking with Janae Chandler, who's a personal finance lecturer, about teaching our our kids about finance and money. Um, are there any concepts that are particularly challenging to teach kids in, in relation to money? Yeah, I think that kids, Matt, so our ability to process long-term decision-making is not fully developed until into our 20s. So that idea of like, it's, and it's something that's really kind of slowly growing. So you'll notice oh, wow. that really young children, um, like three years old and four year old, they have a hard time thinking into the next 15 minutes. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> you know, and, and our, you know, we know our like 10 and 12 year olds, they sometimes have a hard time thinking into next week. And, but really that skill of planning for the long term is vital to good money management. When you're talking about compound interest, that's something that becomes really powerful when you can conceptualize what does 10 years away from now look like. There's this really interesting study where they were um, testing people on financial knowledge, and uh -huh. so they had them take a pretest. Um, and people just scored how they scored. And then the only thing they did, they didn't teach them anything. The only thing they did is show them an aged, progressed image of themselves and had them look at it for like five minutes. And then they took the financial test again, and people scored dramatically better after the only thing they did was look at this picture of themselves. Um, <laughs> how odd. That's that so odd. <laughs> wow. Um but the, the idea, and then they, they've done follow-up research. The thing behind it is that when we think of our future self as a real person, we think of money totally differently. So our natural state is to think of the person I am right now, like my immediate needs take precedent over anything. And for kids, that's just how they operate. But as we get older, 
then we have that ability to think of the future. And so I think just understanding that's the context you're working in with. Yeah. So I might just be with a three-year-old trying to get them to understand that, well, if I have, I can have a cookie now, but I can't have a cookie now and later. Yeah. And then as they get a little bit older saying, okay, if you spend money today, you won't have it tomorrow. And then really, like the truth is, don't be discouraged when your 15-year-old or your 16-year-old still can't budget well and still can't think of the be- end of the month at the beginning of the month because their brains are not fully developed that way. It really does take into your 20s before you really have that skill. Janae, will you share with us a personal story with one of your four kids about finance? Yeah. Oh, this is great. Like, uh, my kids are all about all about money. <laughs> I know, like, that's my <laughs> own fault, right? Um, and some of them, like, I have one daughter, and she's a lot like me. She loves to work, and she loves to earn money. And so she always, we do a little family economy system. We keep it super simple. I just have, like, a note sheet in my phone whereas people do jobs and we have some household jobs that are just you do that because you're part of the family and then there are different bonus jobs that you can earn money for so as they do those types of jobs they can add to their like their account in my phone and then as we're out spending then they'll when we're out shopping they can look at the account and know where they're at and how much they can spend well this one daughter she's my second daughter she always has tons of money in there because she's so (laughs) willing to work and she really loves that and the older daughter tends to have money too because the work that she can do is worth she can babysit and she mows the lawn and she like hers is kind of high dollar value stuff And then, but the third daughter, she never has any money. And so she's always so jealous of the other sisters um, when they have money. But it's, and then my little four-year-old, he's like aware of it. And he always is like, when we're out shopping, he hardly ever has money. Sometimes he has a quarter. Um, But he's always like, oh, when I get home, I'm going to do drawers. I'm totally going to do drawers. This isn't going to happen to me again. Not going to be stuck with a quarter at the store. Yeah. I like him. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's great. So, I mean, I think that that is, that creates just an ongoing conversation that we have about money and where it comes from and what, it, you know, then they get to process my, as they get a little bit older, so they also have like a savings line that they mm-hmm. translate into there. So when they have a certain amount that they want to save and I let them, I talk to them about it and I'm actually, will match it when we put it into their checking or their savings account. So when, if they have saved like 10% or 20%, then they get a match of 20% oh, wow. to go into the, into the savings well, account. Well, that's great because then, you know, a lot of businesses do that. A lot of companies do that yep. when they get over. I know that at our local bank, my kids have gotten paid money for their grades. They bring in their grades and the bank puts in money into their account. And they, when I explained that concept and we went to the bank to do it, they looked at me like, are you kidding me? This is free money, and I said, "Yeah." yeah. And here's the concept, kids: <laughs> you get you get good grades. You know, some people will pay you to go to college, even like a like th- these are concepts of that. Yes. There's free money out there. My kids are very motivated by by that. <laughs> I don't well, know if that's good or not. Shocking. It's shocking how many people are leaving that free money on the table. Like yeah. they're like the numbers about how many people don't get their 401k match are just startling. That you're like, really. You don't want that 5% increase on your salary that goes right to your savings? Like, that's nuts. And talking to our kids about these concepts, I I think, what is your take on that? Uh, Because I know generationally it was, hey, don't don't ask your parents, uh, you know, how much they make or, or, you know, what their APR on their home loan is or whatever. Uh, How do you feel about transparency when talking to your kids about your own personal finances? Totally. And I, I think that I, I tend to understand what the generations say about like in like across families, even inside of like your extended family, yeah. sometimes that gets tricky and their mm-hmm. feelings. And I understand that and respect that. I think inside of your own family, I think one of the best things you can do is say out loud everything you're thinking about money. So really? if you're at the grocery store and you're making a choice and you're trying to work this in your mind about the budget, just talk that out loud to your kids being like, 
well, I'm trying to decide, should I, you know, is this the right moment to buy all of this case lot sell? Do I have enough in our budget to, that's going to yeah. be an expense. Can I afford that? I also think you're, you're, you're paying the bills. Have your kids come sit down right next to you and have them experience what that really looks like and say, okay, here's what the mortgage looks like. Here's, here's how I set up the automatic bill pay on all of our utilities and our cell phone. Um, when you're working through your taxes, I, um, I had recently a student like was frustrated. The tax section of my class is really difficult. Mm-hmm. And I had a student saying, I don't even know why you're making us do this because I'm never going to do this in real life. And I was just like, <laughs> you're totally going to do this in real life. And so I think we do a disservice when our kids are not aware that this is a real part of life. Like, I don't feel bad about anything I teach in my class because I know every piece of it is something that you're actually going to use right. in real life. And so, yeah, maybe this is hard, but you have to figure it out because that's life. We we only have about a minute left yeah. with you. What is one thing that we can do today uh, with our kids? What's one takeaway that we can, uh, from our discussion, be able to go home and, and share with our kids? The thing I would recommend is look for what they're already doing and, like, make that a big deal. So look at hmm. the skills your kids already have with maybe it relates specifically to money or maybe it's just character traits. Like notice that time when your kid is really persistent and works through a hard challenge. Notice when they're, you know, making a thought, they are thinking ahead in that moment when they're like, oh, I considered what might happen in the future. Be like, wow, that's really cool. That's kind of an advanced skill for a kid your age. That's awesome. I think that kind of stuff has such a bigger impact. And if you already notice what they're already doing, then they, it comes from this place of, I feel great about myself. I am capable. I know how to do this. I love it. Well, thank you, Janae, for giving us some really great information about how to encourage our kids not only to learn about finances, but how we can better really model it with our kids and make it make it less uh, overwhelming for them. Appreciate it. For sure. All right. Thanks so much for having me on today. Janae Chandler teaches family finance at, at BYU, lectures on personal finance, is a master of public policy. You can learn more uh, about how to be responsible with your funds by following her advice. Um, her account on Instagram is at Janae Talks Money. Homework, sports, trying to fit in, and a million other things, school can be a really stressful place. For students that suffer from depression or social anxiety, these stresses are amplified even more. Now, with mental illness issues becoming more recognized among younger generations, and with the indications that they are suffering with these conditions more and more as the years go by, how can we be supportive of those students that may be suffering in silence. Our guest today, Dr. Christine Fonseca, has made a great effort in both researching solutions to this conflict during her career as an educational psychologist and award-winning author, and has also been generous enough to be here with us today to give us tips on how we can help our anxious students have positive school experiences. Welcome, Dr. Fonseca. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So what is going to school feel like for a child with social anxiety? Uh, Torture is probably (laughs) the best word for it. It's really hard on kids with social anxiety. They feel oftentimes that their entire world is literally collapsing in on them Mm. throughout the whole day. And it becomes kind of a a lesson for them in pushing through this horrific feeling all day long, which is part of the reason why we see so many kids avoiding school altogether. Mm. Help us to understand, no matter what generation that we lie in, no matter what our school experience was, what is it that makes school so stressful for children? Well, for, I would say, um, 
more and more there's the demands to perform, which mm -hmm. can sometimes be overwhelming for kids. I think it's uh, we have a lot of bullying situations happening on school campuses. And so that's a piece of it. We have um, kind of that clash in generations. Oftentimes right now, we have four generations in the building of a typical classroom uh, or a typical school setting. And so I think all of those things make for a really stressful situation. And with this generation of children we have right now, we have two generations going through schools. In our elementary schools, they're generation alpha. And in our middle schools, high schools, it's more iGen or generation Z. And I think for them, it's even more pronounced because of a reduction in some social skills and, and social emotional learning skills and coping skills that's happening just as a direct result of the impact of technology and the impact of a kind of a, a tough world that we all live in right now. So uh, what, why is it important that we address this? Or in other words, I know a lot of people are like, I went to school just fine and I didn't like it. I, you know, there were things yeah, that stresses yeah. me and you, it's part it's of what, that. it's part of yeah. what you do. You, you just go and you, mm -hmm. and you'll, you'll make it through. Suck you'll it learn, up, yeah. Right? You'll suck it up. <laughs> so why is it important? Said by a Gen Xer. Yeah. So why is, <laughs> yeah, it, right? why is it important that we uh, address it rather than just think that things are going to figure themselves out? Because we have a lot of proof in the research that they're not figuring them things out. Um, right now, we have over a 200% increase in suicide attempts and ideations amongst our youth. Over it's a 200%. Crisis. Over 200%. That it's is a crisis. It's the first time it's happened. And so it's a crisis. So we can't ignore it. When we ignore that kid who um, doesn't want to come to school or who's crying in the nurse's office or who's hiding in the bathroom mm -hmm. or who's hiding in their favorite teacher's office rather than go to lunch, we got to start paying attention to that and, and getting with that kid and, and helping that kid understand that school can be a safe place too. We just have to learn how to help them tolerate it. And I think well-intending adults are partially to blame too. You know, we've and I, I've worked in schools for nearly 20 years mm -hmm. and in a really well-intentioned way, myself and counselors and, and people, uh, similar mental health providers have written different kinds of support plans for kids who are s dealing with a lot of anxiety. And within those plans, we write ways that they can legitimately avoid some of the things that are triggering their anxiety. But we, what we haven't in the past been good at is simultaneously also teaching them how to tolerate those triggers better and how to um, feel empowered and have coping strategies. And I think that's been a misstep. And I think as a result, we've trained a whole lot of kids on how to avoid stuff. Mm. And anxiety is a disease of avoidance. So in a lot of ways, I think we've accidentally made some things worse too. We're talking with Dr. Christine Fonseca about social anxiety at school. Okay, so we want to take this opportunity of talking to you to not ignore it and to really address it uh, head on. In your article, Generation Anxious, you mentioned a few specific tips for helping children with anxiety. Can you share some of the most compelling with us? Well, a couple of things that I think uh, have the biggest impact is when we can partner with the school instead of, you know, let's not make the school the enemy also as parents. Mm -hmm. uh, let's partner with the school the first time that we hear from our child that there's a concern or the first time we see our child trying to avoid going to school. Um, help work with the teacher to develop strategies in the classroom environment so that the student feels more safe. It might mean sh in a short-term way, kind of loosening up on some of those things that trigger the student. So if the student is triggered by being called on in class, for example, the teacher might work with the student to not do that all the time, to not call them out regularly, but kind of develop a hand signal between them um, that they can use or a nonverbal signal for when the student's ready to answer a question. And we just call on them when they're ready instead of um, putting them on the spot. We might uh, create safe zones for that child during recess and during lunch when the campus can be really crazy with lots of students. Um, 
such safe zones can be a favorite teacher's classroom. It can be a library. It can be just as a quieter area for the student. We can have safe people on campus that the student can go to when they're feeling like the walls are closing in. I know as a school psychologist, a lot of times I worked with students and gave them what I lovingly refer to as their get out of jail free card. I even made it look like the Monopoly <laughs> get out of jail free cards. Um, but it was just a what's called a mobility pass that just enabled them to come to my office whenever they felt like the walls were were closing in and the interesting thing is students almost never used it once they had it they just Mm. needed to know they could they needed to know they could leave if they needed to um and and oftentimes if they did leave it just walking to my office was enough to calm them down we would talk for briefly for a couple of minutes and then i'd get them back to class so it's not like they have to be out of class for a long time they just need to feel in control of their setting. Uh, it sounds like you've got a, a plan for that and a plan in action. Uh, I have a f- several friends, actually, who have older kids in mm-hmm. you know uh, high school specifically who just refuse to go to school. Um, and may- maybe things have gotten out of hand that way that there hasn't been a good plan set in place. What would you do in that or suggest in that case? Uh, well, I've worked with many high, I used to work in a middle school for 16 years, so I get it. Early adolescence mm-hmm. is tough. Adolescence itself is tough. Um, the big thing is we can't solve the problem if the kid's not coming to school right. and the more they avoid school, the harder it is to solve the problem. And so, um, oftentimes I'll work with parents and work with the students themselves. And the, the deal was they came to school and they could just hang out in my office all day long if necessary. <laughs> and then we would slowly one step at a time. We usually just start with one class where they felt the most comfortable and we'd get them into that class. And the rest of the time they might be in the library or in my office. Um, But once we mastered one class, we could build it to two, three, four, et cetera, until we can get there a whole day. And then at the same time, we teach the child themselves or the adolescent, in this case, the teen, some specific strategies of what to do when they feel like the world is closing in on them. And I developed a strategy that I lovingly refer to as roar. So I teach them how to roar um, (laughs) at where that first R is standing for relax. And that second R or that second letter O is standing for orient. So in other words, they start to realize where they are in time and place. Anxiety is an interesting beast because it's really Mm -hmm. about being worried about the future or being um, frustrated and upset about the past. But it's almost never about what's happening right now, this minute. Mm. So if we can get ourselves anchored into the present moment, a lot of times we can start to work past it. The A stands for attune. Um, And the reason I use that word is because it's about figuring out what you need right in that moment. So we relax, we figure out our present moment, and then we really ask ourselves, what do I need right this moment, right now? And then the the last R is about releasing. And that's the hardest one for anybody, kids in particular, because it's counterintuitive. And so when we're stressed, we want to get tense and we want to mm-hmm. kind of run away from it. And this is really about learning to lean into it and kind of trust that you're going to be okay and to release that tension. And it's really hard and it usually takes a long time to teach some kids how to do that, what it feels like in the body to do that. But when we can teach kids to roar, they then get in control of some of that anxiety. It's empowering to them. They have Mm -hmm. a strategy they can use anytime, anywhere. And then once they accept that and they kind of build that into their repertoire, then then you have a fight and chance for really solving the problem for them long term. If people are listening to this and 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 they have no familiar familiarity with anxiety, uh, mm-hmm. with with this type of thing, and the, and they think that their child might be dealing mm-hmm. with this, mm-hmm. um, what what is that conversation? Uh, how can that conversation be started? What does that conversation look like, so that there can be empathy on behalf of the parent who's just thinking maybe the kid doesn't want to go to school because yeah. they just hate school? Like, how can we begin that conversation? I, I'd probably ask your child to start explaining what it feels like at school. Like what it like to describe those feelings in detail. Mm-hmm. And then just assume your kid is telling you the truth. You know, I think a lot of times in our generation, we tend to think that our kids are just trying to pull a fast one. 
on us a little bit. Mm-hmm. And while that may be some truth to that, there's always something underlying that need, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a matter of just kind of starting to believe them and starting to have conversations. Now, I do want to caution this because I think what actually happens is the opposite, especially when we're dealing with <laughs> pre-adolescence or adolescence, I think what actually happens is we're, we're a kid, we're sitting at school, we feel that uncomfortable feeling that you get when you learn something new. And we misinterpret that as I'm dying of anxiety. And we have that horrible feeling for a few yeah. days. And so being like any self-respecting student, we refer to Dr. Google to figure out what's going on. And right. Dr. Google leads us to WebMD. And WebMD makes those symptoms sound like we are absolutely dying from a very serious case of, of generalized anxiety disorder. And while we may in fact have that, Dr. Google's probably not your best source, right, right. for that answer. Um, but we print out the little, you know, we show our parent the, the thing of description. It sounds correct. We go to the pediatrician. The pediatrician says, yeah, it's anxiety. And the next thing you know, we're all being treated for anxiety when maybe what we were really dealing with was that uncomfortable feeling of not knowing something or getting called out at school. And so it's a really delicate balancing act. And I think mental health professionals need to be careful about not overdiagnosing. And I think, um, I think we need to believe the kid when they're telling us they're anxious and they don't feel right and teach them strategies. But I think we need to be cautious about automatically assuming it the worst. And we just need to take a balanced approach. Do you think that teachers and other faculty are usually open to working with parents in in addressing these um, these issues with their kids? I think now they are. I don't think that's necessarily always been true, but hmm. many educators I work with, I, I get to work as an educational consultant and go all over the country. And most educators that I work with definitely say their kids are more anxious than ever mm-hmm. and they're just looking for a way to help the kids and, and also help the kids still get a really great education at the same time. Wow. Yeah. Well, we appreciate uh, your time. We have about 30 seconds left in that time. Do you have any other parting advice you'd like to give parents who just really want to help their socially anxious children? Just don't panic, right? Don't panic with all of it. It's absolutely solvable. You just have to take it one day at a time, small baby steps. You may step backwards every now and then, but that's okay. You can absolutely get through this. Christine Fonseca is a licensed educational psychologist as well as an award-winning author and speaker. You can find her books and learn more about her and her work at christinefonseca.com. 